0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining me again. You can follow the program at danproftshow.com. That's where you can also pick up podcasts of the program. You can find them as well on Spotify, iTunes. Follow us online on social media, at Dan Prof Show on Facebook and Twitter, as well as at Prof Dan. We're a little reversal there on Instagram. And uh, we begin with uh, Tony Fauci along with uh, so Dr. Tony Fauci, along with Dr. Robert Redfield of CDC and Dr. Hahn of FDA, all testifying before Senate committee today. And by the way, I thought uh, Senator Tim Kaine from Virginia looked absolutely fetching in that scarf that Dr. Burks allowed him to borrow of hers. Uh, that was very nice of her, uh, Tim Kaine. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the substance of the matter, uh, Dr. Fauci had uh, some important words to offer on both the prospect of remdesivir as a antiviral as well as where we are with uh, pursuit of a vaccine, first on remdesivir.
2: Let me take a moment to describe the remdesivir placebo-controlled randomized trial, which was done internationally with a power of more than a thousand individuals in sites throughout the world. It was in hospitalized patients with lung disease. The endpoint was primarily time to recovery. The result was statistically significant, but really modest, And we must remember, it was only a modest result showing that the drug made a 31% faster time to recovery. We hope to build on this modest success with combinations of drugs and better drugs.
1: Okay, so uh, it's baby step, remdesivir, at least at this stage. And it's been granted emergency use authorization. You have the remdesivir uh, supplies uh, that have been. Uh, sent out to the states. I know uh, my home state of Illinois received a shipment of remdesivir yesterday per Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker that was already being distributed to hospitals for emergency use on a individual doctor and patient basis, but uh, it is not going to meet the standard. It doesn't appear at this stage, all, clar- you know, qualifications, that uh, it will meet the uh, standard of you know a widely available therapeutic that um uh substantially addresses the virus in terms of uh helping people get back to health with uh, all due speed. Uh, Fauci also uh, discussed where we are in the stage of vaccine development and uh again managing expectations about the best case scenario. Remember this is best case scenario for a time horizon for any possible vaccine, but at least he gives us the basis for the approach being taken.
2: There are some important issues, however, in COVID-19 vaccine development. We have many candidates that hope to have multiple winners. In other words, it's multiple shots on goal. This will be important because this will be good for global availability if we have more than one successful candidate. We also, as the chairman mentioned, will be producing vaccine at risk which means we'll be investigating considerable resources in developing doses even before we know any given candidate or candidates work. I must warn that there's also the possibility of negative consequences where certain vaccines can actually enhance the negative effect of the infection. The big unknown is efficacy. Will it be present or absence and how durable will it be?
1: And uh, he made clear in further questioning about things like school opening in the fall, that uh, you should not expect uh, a vaccine to be widely available by the fall or perhaps even the winter. Not going to be this term, which is consistent with what's been said from the beginning, 12 to 18 month time horizon, best case scenario. And uh, it, we're, it's, it's really not known what the prospects are for a vaccine a vaccine that even has the efficacy of say a flu vaccine of 50%. It uh, really calls to mind so much of uh, the testimony from all of the doctors. And uh, certainly the speechifying from so many of the senators, this piece at uh spectator, uh, the British edition of the spectator, we know everything and nothing about COVID. <laughs> uh, Matt Ridley, uh, is the author of the piece, along with uh, uh, virologist uh, Elisabetta Grappelli, um, who uh, podcast on the topic as well. Uh, but this, I think, is a paragraph sums it up nicely. Every new disease is different, and its epidemiology becomes clear only gradually and in retrospect. Is COVID-19 transmitted mainly by breathing or by touching? Do children pass it on without getting sick? Why is it so much worse in Britain than Japan? Why are obese people especially at risk? How many people have had it? Are ventilators useless after all? Why is it not exploding in India and Africa? Will there be a second wave? We do not begin to have answers to these questions. And I would add a bunch more. Why do we have such a relatively low incidence uh, and a cap almost of uh spread in confined places like prisons or, or uh, cruise ships. We've talked about that data here. It's, it's remarkable actually. Um, so many questions about this. Uh the, 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 you know, we got that report from DHS, uh, Homeland Security uh, researchers uh, last week about UV rays and, uh, and, and eliminate or, or cutting the half-life of the virus in, uh, within a minute or so, once uh, struck by UV rays. New study out of Canada has not found any association between temperature or latitude in the spread of the virus. Now, again, um, UV rays, temperature, not necessarily the same thing, but they're correlated. Uh, University of Toronto health policy researcher, we had conducted a preliminary study that suggested both latitude and temperature could play a role, but when we repeated the study under much more rigorous conditions, we got the opposite result. Um, and uh, in the. The researchers look back at the uh, previous 14 days, the exposure period, investigated temperature, latitude, humidity, as well as school closures, restrictions on mass gatherings and other social distancing measures in regions during the time. Epidemic growth of covid-19 was not associated with latitude and temperature, but maybe maybe negatively associated weekly with relative or absolute humidity. So again, uh when it warms up when summer arrives that it will uh quickly dissipate. Eh, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um we have, you know, more sort of wild and willy stories coming out about uh, potential uh anti other potential antiviral treatments. Um <laughs> You know, much like um, Edward Jenner, uh, who was the inventor of the smallpox vaccine, came upon it by observing individuals who milk cows were and were exposed to cows suffering from cowpox, were immune to human smallpox. He reasoned from that observation that a vaccine made from smallpox lesions could be protective. Uh, well, we have this uh, llama antibodies produced by a llama, specifically a four-year-old llama named Winter. The llama, researchers vaccinated against coronaviruses that caused MERS and SARS in 2016, produced antibodies in response to vaccination, which were able to really potentially neutralize both of those viruses, according to one researcher at the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, the team is testing the antibody. The team tested those antibodies on cells infected with COVID-19 in a laboratory environment and neutralized the virus. These findings were published last week in a scientific journal in collaboration with researchers out of Belgium. So we we don't know yet, but it's just, you know, it's interesting. And so uh, we talk to medical professionals, both the public health sort, the PhDs, the researchers, the academicians as well as the medical doctors and the infectious disease experts. And it, it, I, I just note again, because I think it's uh, so relevant, and the ter- term humility was thrown around a little bit today between the senators and those testifying before their committee. It needs to be thrown ar- around a lot more. The humility with which most healthcare professionals and medical doctors come to the table, despite the jokes about What's the difference between doctor and, and God? Uh, what we don't know. And yet the pronouncements from politicians who say with absolute confidence what they do know and the, that they are doing the right thing with a metaphysical certitude based on relying on, you know, the science and the data produced by people who are expressing humility about what we don't know yet what we're learning every day and and unlearning every day what we think we know and then what's called into question when one study is done in reaction to another study. This is Dan Bravo.
0: Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did an interview with Laura Trump, actually. And he was asked about President Obama's comments, both about Attorney General Barr dropping charges against General Flynn and uh, Obama's pronouncements in terms of reviewing the quality of the administration's, the Trump administration's response to the pandemic. In his estimation, McConnell had this to say about the former president's comments.
3: You know, generally, former presidents just don't do that. I remember President George W. Bush and his father. Um went right through eight years of Democratic administrations after they left office and kept their mouth shut because they didn't feel it was appropriate for former presidents to be uh, to critique even a president of another party. So I think President Obama um, should have kept his mouth shut. You know, um, we know he doesn't like much this administration is doing. That's understandable. But I think it's a little bit, classless frankly to uh critique an administration that comes after you you had your shot you were there for eight years um i think the the tradition that the bush has set up of not critiquing the president who comes after you is a good tradition
1: mm-hmm. always um a man of uh, norms in political norms but Trey Gowdy, also want to hear from him. He was on with Tucker Carlson last night, and he admitted to a mistake he made, a mistake he made early on in the process.
3: You were briefed by the FBI in 2018, and shortly after that briefing, came on this channel to describe
4: uh, your reaction to it. Here's what you said then. But as of now, I think Chris Ray and Rod Rosenstein are stunned whenever people think Trump is the target of their investigation. I'll leave it up to them how to brief the president so or how to brief the that of view lawyers. that you're talking about right
5: now? Was that strengthened when you went into this briefing last week?
4: Yes, I, I am. I am even more convinced that the FBI did exactly what my fellow citizens would want them to do when they got the information they got, and that it has nothing to do with Donald Trump.
3: I remember watching
4: that and thinking, boy, I hope he's right. I, do you still feel that way? Oh, gosh, no. No, that, that was I made a lot of mistakes in life, relying on briefings and not insisting on the documents. It took me about three weeks. I went over to the Department of Justice. I sat there for four hours. That's when I saw that Peter Strzok actually initiated and approved Crossfire Hurricane. That's when I saw the exculpatory information on George Papadopoulos. That's when I saw, for the very first time, that it was the Trump campaign mentioned in that predicate document. They've been telling us all along, Trump's not the target. The campaign's not the target. So, yes, my mistake was relying on the word of the FBI and the DOJ and not insisting on the documents. Right. Luckily, it took me about three weeks to correct that mistake.
1: Yeah, um, that was a big mistake, a mistake nobody's ever going to make again because of the reputation of the FBI, particularly if you are um, center-right. I don't know, even under Christopher <laughs> Ray is so damaged by their performance during 2016, the election, and then the Mueller investigation, which arguably was largely orchestrated to protect the reputation of the FBI after it had so bungled things in 2016 under Jim Comey. Very good piece by Holman Jenkins in The Wall Street Journal, what the FBI cover-up is covering up. The Steele dossier was known to consist of silly inventions and scrappings from the Internet, likely tainted by Kremlin disinformation. Right. Not even Glenn Simpson at Fusion GPS, who paid for the dossier and was paid for the dossier, could verify it, much less anybody else. Jenkins goes on to talk about what remains hidden in a classified report by the Justice Department Inspector General concerns the alleged Russian intelligence that FBI Director Comey used to justify his unprecedented, improper, and insubordinate interventions in the Hillary Clinton email case. I cannot stress too much the dereliction of the press since the flurry of disclosures in May 2017 by the New York Times, Washington Post, and CNN that Mr. Comey's doings were triggered by a Russian intercept that his FBI colleagues believed to be false and possibly a plant. The intelligence appeared to reveal named Democrats and Obama officials discussing a conspiracy to bury the Clinton investigation. Either Mr. Comey ignored this evidence and implicitly became party to the conspiracy's alleged goal of liberating Mrs. Clinton from her email travails, or he exploited fabricated Russian intelligence to facilitate the same end. Either way, uh, whether they inadvertently helped elect Trump by his ham handed intervention late in the 2016 election cycle to uh, reopen per Anthony Weiner's laptop or not. Going back to Jenkins, it's hard to see Mr. Mueller's forceful pursuit of guilty pleas from General Flynn and others over trivial matters as anything but an attempt to weave a distracting patina of legitimacy around the FBI's election year actions. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend K.T. McFarlane, former first deputy national security advisor to President Trump and author of Revolution Trump, Washington and We the People. KT, I, I think you may have some comments on the whole General Flynn matter.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, since I was General Flynn's deputy. Yeah. Uh, it's great to be with you again. I, the article that you've read, I, when I first read it, I sort of read it a second time and third time. He's nailed it. But I think that he, that Holman Jenkins probably didn't go far enough. Like, what were they trying to cover up? I think that the entire Obama administration had gotten very deep into spine on everybody. And that was the big cover-up. And they didn't. They assumed that Hillary would come in, and therefore, nobody would ever complain about it. Mm-hmm. But then when Trump came in, they knew they had to cover their tracks and cover up. So they targeted Flynn, and they targeted me, because they knew that Flynn would understand what they had done, because he had been former head of Defense Intelligence Agency. So he knew what intelligence was, how it was gathered. He would have seen in a nanosecond what they'd been up to.
1: And so— are they still doing it? In other words, President Obama's leaked, quote unquote, uh, phone call talking about uh, his concern for the rule of law with respect to the dropping of charges against General Flynn. Do you see that as just preemptive damage control for what is yet to come?
6: Yes, I definitely think there's a whole lot more coming. I think Obama at all are running scared. And this is a preemptive damage control.
1: I know uh, we've discussed this, but we, we need to reset the table in these times um, Provide uh, some more context to what you uh, just said, which is that, you know, they wanted you to admit to a crime you didn't commit, and they were trying to use you to level up to the president.
6: Well, they used the same tactics with Jamison that they did with me. They show up at my door, unannounced, say they just want to ask a few questions about Russian interference in the U.S. election. And I'm such a stupid Girl Scout. I said, well, yeah, I want to find out what the Russians did, too. I want to make sure nobody does this in an American election again. And so I cooperated with him. And when I asked, do I need a lawyer? And they said, well, we can't tell you not to get a lawyer, but you really, you know, you don't really need a lawyer. We're just trying to get a sense of what was going on in the Trump transition and the Trump campaign. Then as things went on longer and longer and longer, 10 hours, 20 hours, 30 hours later, several sessions later, It was pretty clear that they were, they seized all of my documents, all my records, which I turned into the government, again, like a good Girl Scout, like you're supposed to do when you leave government. So they had all my text messages, emails, phone logs, and then they had like the answer key and they would quiz me on stuff. And I didn't have access to these things. They would show me what they felt like showing me, what they wanted to show me, you know, a paragraph here taken out of context. And when I asked, well, can I have everything? That you've got, or can you give me the unaddicted version? Or how about at least putting them in chronological order, letting me make a copy of them? Oh, no, no, that's not how this works. They were trying, they were setting up perjury traps.
1: When we come back with Katie McFarland, former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Trump and author of the book Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People, I want to turn to what uh, General Flynn's defense counsel, Sidney Powell, had to say on Fox about how far she thinks. The orchestration of this investigation went more with KT McFarland when we listen.
0: This is the Dan Profit Show.
1: We're back with Katie McFarland, and uh, I wanted to uh, tackle the uh, transcripts of testimony given behind closed doors under oath by senior Obama administration officials. It's fascinating to read the transcripts from the uh, court filings of what uh, the uh, James Clappers and Susan Rice's and Samantha Powers's and Andy McCabe said under oath as compared to their uh, black helicopter conspiracy theories they were promoting on cable TV news for three years. But it's 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 worse than that. It's worse than just them saying Trump is a Russian agent on TV while behind closed doors and on oath They're saying, uh, well, I don't have any knowledge of Russian collusion. I, I don't have any evidence that he colluded with the Russians. It's worse mm-hmm. than it's worse than that. There's actually lying again. Jim, Jim, James Clapper, who's used to lying to people, lied about the metadata collection program, as we know. And he also lied about whether or not he briefed Obama on the Flynn Kislyak phone calls on the f- phone call between or phone calls between General Flynn and Russian ambassador Kislyak in mm-hmm. uh, it, when he um, was asked in a July 2017 interview uh, by Republican committee members he said he hadn't briefed Obama on those calls in earlier congressional testimony provided by former FBI director Jim Comey according to Comey's March 2017 account He briefed Clapper on the Flynn-Kisliak calls and then gave the former DNI copies of the transcripts. In the first week of January, said Comey, uh, Clapper briefed the president and the vice president and then President Obama's senior team about what we had found. You know, that's not like misremembering. That's saying something that didn't happen Uh, that 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 happened then didn't happen one way or the other. And that is like a a material event, something you would not misremember unless you were suffering under some sort of medical condition.
6: Yeah. And remember, Dan, that they would have all had access to the to the records And, and something like what topic did you brief the president on? That's that would be heavily documented in the internal documents, which they would have had access to in preparing for those interviews. So. There's not misremembering or, gee, I'm not sure if we said it Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, that's pretty deliberate as far as I'm concerned. And, and I think there's an awful lot more that's going to come out. General, um, that Gen- there's, there's more and more evidence of this, and it's coming out every day.
1: General Flynn's uh, defense counsel, Sidney Powell, said on uh, Maria Roma show over the weekend that this goes mm-hmm. all the way to the top, meaning President Obama, that he knew what was happening if he wasn't uh, directing it himself.
6: You know, I think that's the big question, is what did what did Susan Rice, the national security advisor, what did she know and when did she know it? What did Vice President Biden know and when did he know it? And what did President Obama know and when did he know it? And what was their role in all of this? Because, in effect, take a step back. This was uh, one political party, an outgoing administration, which doesn't like the incoming administration of the opposite party. In fact, despises them and despises everything that they're planning to do and the reason the American people elected them, and they want to undo it. They're, they're in effect, trying to undo an American election. By, by And then think of what they've done to the nation. For three years, they were on television every day, and their their acolytes and echo chamber in the press saying, yes, we know there's definitely collusion, there's this, there's that, and yet the documents are now coming out. They knew from the very beginning this was all a hoax.
1: They made it up. On uh, January 17th of uh, 2017, or January 16th, I think it was, actually, of 2017, President Obama pardoned General James E. Cartwright, a retired Marine Corps general and former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who pled guilty to lying to the FBI about his discussions with reporters about Iran's nuclear program, saving him from a possible prison sentence. Pardoned James Cartwright, General Cartwright, for lying to the FBI, pled guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, I just saw, uh, note that because of the hand-wringing uh, going on by Obama and those Obama cultists who are very concerned about the rule of law with the dropping of charges against General Flynn. Now, he, he couldn't think of a precedent. He couldn't think of a time where someone had been charged with lying to the FBI. He called it perjury, but it was lying to the FBI. Has ever uh, been... Um, uh, get, get provided this treatment is, I think, the way he was insinuating. Well,
6: and Trump, did, if President Trump hasn't pardoned General Flynn. No, I, I know. That's, a, that's another difference. It's, I know. I mean, is President he... Obama's playing by his own rules. Right. As you led into this and you said that, you know, President Mitch McConnell said that presidents, when they leave the Oval Office, they normally just let the next guy have his turn. President Obama has no intention of that. Mm. He's right. gonna weigh in on this and he's gonna sound hurt and insulted and he's gonna have the echo chamber in the liberal media and there's done the nation such an enormous enormous damage.
1: Alright, so I don't think we're gonna get a Yelp review on becoming from you, KT. All right. <laughs> KT McFarland?
2: Don't turn around.
0: Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Prof. Show.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Prof. Show. Uh, now comes the story of Port of Seattle police officer and Special Forces veteran Greg Anderson. Uh, he uh, made a video for which he is now on administrative leave, and uh, in that video, Port of Seattle Police Officer Greg Anderson
7: said the following: Every time I turn on the television, every time I turn, I look to the internet. I am seeing people arrested or cited for going to church, for traveling on the roadways, for going surfing, opening their businesses, going to the park with their families, um, or doing nails out of their out of their own house using their own house as a place of business and having an undercover agents go there and arrest them and charge them with, with what, with a crime. I don't, I don't know what crime people are committing by doing nails in their own house, but we're seeing this more and more and more. And, uh, we need to start looking at ourselves as officers and thinking is what I'm doing right.
1: Imagine that um, somebody thinking about uh, the rule of law, but uh, the rule of law that begins with uh, enforcing laws that uh, comport with. Constitutional principles. Forget principles comport with the black letter of the United States Constitution. Is is even raising that question. That's a. The predicate to put somebody on administrative leave, police officer on administrative leave?
7: I want to remind you that regardless of where you stand on the coronavirus, we don't have the authority to do those things to people just because a mayor or a governor tells you otherwise. Uh, it, I don't care if it's your sergeant or your chief of police, we don't get to violate people's constitutional rights because somebody in our chain of command tells us otherwise. It's not how this country works. Um, those are de facto arrests, you know, we're violating people's rights and, and, and taking money from them or even worse, arresting them and depriving them of their freedom when they are exercising their constitutional rights.
1: Uh, and so, uh, this is his viewpoint. Um, there's no indication, at least from the accounts that I've read that, uh, he, Refused a direct order from a superior. He's talking about what he believes is constitutional and is not constitutional with respect to, you know, say, Fifth Amendment takings of somebody's property, much less the imprisonment, the citation and or imprisonment of somebody for uh, utilizing their property in an otherwise lawful way.
7: Let's let's read something right here off of the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. Among these, we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
1: I mean, don't you want police officers to be particularly thoughtful and mindful of your constitutional rights? Isn't, isn't the main criticism of police when they take the law into their own hands, when they... Uh, treat people in a way that's violative of their constitutional rights. Now you have somebody who is openly contemplating what he sees around him and in, in not just in Seattle, not just where he has jurisdiction as an officer, he's just talking about generally in the country and questioning whether or not some of these edicts from politicians are consistent with respect for people's individual rights or whether they're illegitimate infringements and and he's the bad guy now huh? I, interesting to note the juxtaposition is perfect so this is a police officer special forces veteran uh, meanwhile you have a seattle city council member named shama sawant who in a tweet over the weekend advocated basically nationalizing amazon Tweeting, yes, corporations like Amazon need to be taken into small d democratic public ownership to be run by workers for social good. We will need militant mass movements, strike actions at workplaces to begin to fight to win this because it will be a political strike against billionaires. <laughs> She's advocating sort of the forcible seizure of Amazon and corporations like it. I'm not suggesting if it's her view, I'm the. That tweeting is not uh, that's not uh, violative of the law as far as I'm as far as my read on it. I I don't think it's even a close call, but it's just remarkable. Her viewpoint as a duly elected member of the Seattle City Council, also sworn to uphold. Constitution and protect individual rights consistent with upholding the Constitution. (laughs) She's tweeting that to uh, no particular a fact or interest. Uh, Greg Anderson, the cop, is talking about people's individual rights, and he's put on administrative leave. By the way, there has been a GoFundMe page set up for him that's raised more than uh, two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars as of my last look. And so he can pay. Well, I I don't know if he, he'll get a you know a union lawyer or what for his, or some hearing per his administrative leave. But I mean, it's just uh, it's just remarkable. I'll tell you what, uh, I can't think of a better segue to remind you of No Safe Spaces, the documentary I've talked about for the last couple of weeks, uh, Dennis Prager, Adam Carolla, documenting the assault on free speech in America. Has uh, humor and freedom speech been smothered to the point of no return? Mm, The answer is not obvious to me. From the creators of No Safe Spaces, uh, we comes this uh, Facebook Live event, Not Allowed to Laugh, Free Speech and the Death of Comedy, uh, Wednesday, May 13th, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, Seattle Time for Officer Anderson, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, hosted by Eric Metaxas with the stars of No Safe Spaces, Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager, and special guest comedian Kareth Foster. Lively hour-long conversation about the state of comedy and free speech today and the challenges of making the movie No Safe Spaces. To be a part of this event, just go to No Safe Spaces on Facebook while you can. Questions for Eric, Dennis, and Adam can be asked on Facebook using the hashtag #NoSafeSpaces. You can also get your DVD or stream No Safe Spaces now and save 25% while supplies last at nosafespaces.com. Again, remember the promo code SAFE25. That's nosafespaces.com, promo code SAFE25. Don't miss Not Allowed to Laugh, free speech and the death of comedy, May 13th, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. On the No Safe Spaces Facebook page, a safe space for laughter and free speech, and Officer Greg Anderson from Seattle.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, uh, Elon Musk is uh, auditioning to be a modern-day tank man, isn't he? Uh, Announcing yesterday via Twitter that he's resuming production of cars at Tesla's lone U.S. Assembly factory in Fremont, California, uh, after having stopped production on March 23rd. He's uh, done with the uh, shutdown. As he's expressed before, we've uh, mentioned on this show, his uh, William Wallace-like declaration that people should get their G.D. freedom back hmm. He also said on Twitter, I'll be on the line with everyone else. If anyone is arrested, I ask only that it be me. Uh huh. That true. This response from Lorena Gonzalez. You may remember California Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, the San Diego Democrat who crafted the job killing AB5 legislation to uh, force gig economy workers to be treated as full time employees, which, of course, led to the layoff of gig economy workers by outfits like Uber and Lyft. She tweeted in response, this colorful remark, re- very substantive from a state legislature, but I guess that's where we're at these days. F Elon Musk <laughs> uh, to which he uh, responded uh, message received. Oh, that's fine. Um, so we'll see how it works out with Elon Musk in California, taking on the uh, established political order. Now, Elon Musk, it, it doesn't mean he's uh, not a bit of a strange dude, and uh, a conflicted hero, a bit of an anti-hero. Remember, he doesn't even exist without government largesse financing every company that he's ever started in substantial form. But um, uh, nonetheless, we do appreciate uh, providing room for him to come over to the side of standing up and demanding balance, which is really all he's doing. But he's all he's doing is demanding balance in the approach to reopening. The states, particularly California, particularly given its relatively low incidence of COVID 19 fatalities, as we've noted since its initial outbreak. Although, just in terms of his complication, though, I just have to remark upon this. Did you hear the name that he and his, uh, I guess, girlfriend, Grimes, this Canadian uh, singer, gave their newborn baby? X Ash A 12. Uh, I, I don't know if that, that's the name of a new model of Tesla or the proper name of a child, but that's the name. X-Ash, the A-E together, pronounced Ash. X-Ash-A-12. Listen to the explanation. First of all, my partner is the one who mostly mostly actually came up with a name. She's great at names, clearly. Yeah. The X is just the letter X. The A-E is pronounced Ash. There's no real explanation. That's Okay. The A-12 is Musk's contribution. This is kind of cool because I share an affinity for aircraft. I don't know that I would apply it to the name of my child, but the A-12, he is, he's referencing the Lockheed A-12 reconnaissance aircraft from like the 60s, which is a precursor to the Lockheed Blackbird, which uh, he says is the coolest plane ever, and he's actually right about that. That is the coolest plane ever. But um, that's the basis of the name. So, you know, take Elon Musk uh, uh, in small doses and uh, I guess uh, use him as a blunt instrument to go after politicians like Gavin Newsom and Lorena Gonzalez. This is Dan Proft.
0: Far from the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show.
5: You are fake news.
1: podcast there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter at Dan Profit and at Dan Profit show. I have said this from the outset about uh, trade-offs and lives versus lives. It's always been the issue. There is no choice to be made that doesn't put people at risk. And those who are suggesting otherwise are sophists and cranks. Uh, and so uh, the choices we made and the unintended but nonetheless real consequences, some on the positive side, some on the not so positive side. For example, coming out of New York, the number of deaths in New York City from causes other than COVID 19 rose by more than 5,000 people above the seasonal norm during the first two months of the pandemic, according to the CDC. The deaths could be due to several factors, the CDC said, including delays in seeking or getting life saving care for fear of exposure to the coronavirus or because quote-unquote elective procedures that weren't really all that elective, somewhat time-sensitive, not immediate but time-sensitive, did not get made, uh, did not happen in time. Uh, And then, as we talked about, because we have a lot of research on this topic, because we know how economic ruin impacts people's mental health and, unfortunately, their behavioral choices, like self-harm, either." suicide or self-medication. Uh, we know we've, we've been through recessions, great the Great Recession of 2008. It's not that far in our past. Uh, we know how that sort of devastation can impact people. And there is a new study out by the Wellbeing Trust and the Robert Graham Center for Policy Studies in Family Medicine and Primary Care that estimates as many as 75,000 more people, more people, will die from drug or alcohol misuse and suicide. Three factors are at work exacerbating deaths of despair, unprecedented economic failure paired with massive unemployment, mandated social isolation for months, possible uh, residual isolation for years, and uncertainty caused by the sudden emergence of a novel previously unknown microbe. Uh, Benjamin F. Miller chief strategy officer for the well-being trust undeniably policymakers must place a large focus on mitigating the effects of covid however if the country continues to ignore the collateral damage specifically our nation's mental health we will not come out of this stronger those 75,000 lives matter just as much as the 75,000 lives that have been taken by the virus thus the argument for a balanced approach Understanding risk is endemic to every choice available. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Gregory Jantz, licensed mental health counselor with a doctorate in counseling psychology, founder of the Center, A Place for Hope, and author of Healing Depression for Life. Gregory Jantz, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
8: Oh, good to be with you today. This is really an important topic. We're going to begin to see some things. Happen in people's lives and addictions, just one of them.
1: Well, react to um, that study from the Wellbeing Trust.
8: Yeah, we're seeing it already. This is uh, something that we're concerned about. The emotional saturation is the term I'm calling it, where we have had enough. We're on the edge of despair. It's despair that says, I don't know if I can make it much longer. It's the despair that people's lives uh, are on that edge of the anxiety is overwhelming, and the depression. And when we get to that point, and we get to that point of total saturation, we start to make decisions out of desperation, and we're seeing more of that. We're seeing people who um, have had enough, and you're starting to see them revolt. And there's a revolt going on, and and some are. Uh, also then turning more inward. And the inward is the isolation. They continue it. Uh, They turn to addictive behaviors. And we're going to see, we will see, because we've started it now, an increase in suicide and an increase in addictions. That's already started.
1: What about uh, these mantras uh, and sort of the virtue shaming that comes with them, the hashtags and the you know, um, you're going to kill your grandma if you don't abide our strictures and, and sort of um, not just fear, but sort of the anxiety and, and the, the guilt complexes that uh, politicians attempt to impose on people.
8: <laughs> yeah. There's something called uh, that I'm calling acute anticipatory anxiety. Acute anticipatory anxiety. It's saying if you don't do this, something bad's going to happen. And so that's also a way of modulating our behavior. And here's what I have to say about that, it's wrong. OK, so, yeah, that's
1: it's wrong. That's succinct uh, to the point. I appreciate <laughs> stra- straight talk. Well, it, it, because it I mean, it's it's infantilizing, but it but it's but it's worse than that. Right. Because it's coming from somebody in a position of authority. And then and so you're sort of back on your heels. People like to think of themselves as good people. Well, gosh, if I don't do this, I'm a bad person. And if I don't do this, I could kill somebody and I don't want to kill somebody. I don't want to be responsible for that. And you get all bound up.
8: Yeah, so we do the basic common sense precautions and, you know, that's washing your hands. That's um, if you're in a group covering your face, you know, there's the things that we all know to do. Please do those basics. Um, but we also know um, that uh, we're going to empower one another towards life, not power empower one another towards death.
1: Yeah, there's something, too, about this. And I wonder if this is part of the conversation you have with uh, with patients or those who come to you seeking counseling. Uh, and, and that's, you know, the, there's a difference between living a life and just existing in a strict biological sense. And that seems to be somewhat lost in this whole national dialogue that's been running for a couple of months now.
8: Yeah, it is lost. And, you know, we work with folks from all over the country who come in for help for anxiety and depression. And I have to tell you, uh, in your area, um, we're seeing quite a few that are coming our direction to get help. And uh, it's increased. It's increasing during this. And I want to acknowledge there are folks out there who know, they know that this is I'm on the edge and I need help. And that's we don't want to have regret. And so often when we continue in, a, in this pattern of self-destruction, we're going to have later regret. So um, let's watch for that. Uh, and you know what? It's good and it's okay to ask for help. We all have a turn. And uh, when you layer the chronic stress that people are under by all the financial stress that's on top of this, uh, you know, that's, that's a formula for emotional disaster.
1: Uh, I wanted to, you to tackle the topic of stripping people of agency. Uh, which happens, uh, generally speaking, it's more acute in these times, I would argue. And and by that, I mean, um, well, something, frankly, that uh, longshoreman term philosopher Eric Hoffer argued in his uh, treatise on mass movements, which is people won't change unless they think that they're in control of their lives and they can improve their lives for the better. If they don't believe those two dynamics are in play, then they will be content with the status quo, And that's bad enough in times where people at least still have the freedom of movement and and uh, other freedoms Uh, in times where they don't have the uh, enjoyments. And frankly, full complement of rights that they normally have uh, sort of settling with the status quo and believing you do not have dominion over your own life becomes actually dangerous to them.
8: Yes. And that's a very good point, because if I become powerless or have a sense that I'm powerless then I become immobilized and fear is what's controlling my life. And so we know fear is the great paralyzer, it's how we control things. Um, you know, I'm in the Seattle area, so when this all broke out, everybody was afraid and somebody decided to go buy toilet paper. And so now we we created a toilet paper craze that originated here. Now, that said, we do things, we do things because we need a sense of control. And this is why we're seeing individuals, and I'm using the word revolt, they're saying, um, you know what, this is no longer okay, and I'm standing up. And one by one, we're seeing businesses say, nope, no more, no more. And people are standing up because uh, there reaches a point that says, you know what, I value my freedom, and I'm willing now. I'm willing now to stand up.
1: First grunge rock, and now the toilet paper mania. I mean, hasn't Seattle done enough? <laughs> it hasn't Seattle oh. hurt us enough, Dr. Jance? I'm
8: so sorry about that toilet
1: paper, <laughs> yes. He is Dr. Gregory Jance, licensed mental health counselor with a doctorate in counseling psychology, founder of The Center, A Place for Hope, outside of Seattle, as he was just describing, and author of Healing Depression for Life. Gregory Jans, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
8: Hey, good to be with you today. Thank you.
3: Take care. I
9: came to get down. I came to get down. So get out your seat and jump around. Jump around. Jump around. Jump around.
0: The Dan
1: Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, let's take a little diversion from some of the heavier stuff and talk a little bit of sports. And we need our bread and circuses too. It's part of life, and um, I'm I'm a sports fanatic, uh, just like uh, so many American men are. And I want to see sports return just as soon as possible in Chicago. Obviously, it's not a fall without the Chicago Bears. It would be bizarre if such a thing were to come to pass. The problem is, despite the fact that Major League Baseball owners, for example, have apparently green-lighted a plan to resume baseball July 4th weekend, you got to get buy-in from the players, and you also have very different approaches by the relevant states that are home to major league baseball teams. So for example, you know, I hope uh, Dyersville, Iowa's field of dreams is available for the Cubs and the Sox because July 4th doesn't seem to be the timeline that my home state of Illinois is on. And also uh, what this means for the world of sports betting as uh, casinos and now sports books have uh, multiplied and become ubiquitous throughout America. For more on these topics, we're pleased to be joined by Greg, Greg Bishop He's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, former Jets beat writer. That's a dismal beat for The New York Times and former Seahawks beat writer for The Seattle Times. Greg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
10: Uh, Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: So uh, how many trillions of dollars are going to be bet on May 24th, Tiger and Manning versus Brady and Mickelson?
10: It's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, one thing that the people that make the odds told me, the guys that work at these books and that are anticipating what the bets will be is that the action has been higher than they expected on anything. They've had the high bets on, say, Belarusian soccer or simulated <laughs> matting games or you know, things that aren't even real, you know. Uh, the high temperature in Las Vegas on a Wednesday. So to have an actual sporting event, even if we're putting event in quote marks, I think you're gonna see some action there. There was a lot of action on the draft and I think it speaks to the fact that it just hasn't been a lot to bet on for a long extended period of time.
1: Well, I mean, this is uh, to, you know, to be serious for a second, this is a massive industry, particularly a massive industry in Nevada, in Las Vegas, of course, and and has real world economic implications for hundreds of thousands of people that are not a laughing matter. I mean, we we know what happened to Nevada uh, during the Great Recession when tourists stopped going and what the, the, what the housing market looked like in Nevada during that period. I mean, that, you know, right now will pale in comparison to the damage being inflicted in that community, in that state.
10: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I did the piece on sports betting that ran um, recently, you know, one guy that I talked to, his name is Jake Carnegie. He runs the sports book at Westgate uh, Casino in Las Vegas. And He was saying that they have a 240-foot-wide board that shows sports highlights all day long, and it it had never before been turned off. He was saying the casino even didn't have locks on the front doors because they'd never actually closed. There's no plan in place (laughs) to close. And so, you know, when he goes to work now, you talk about the number of people that work in the casino, how loud it is, you know, how bright it is, how even at four in the morning there are people – drinking and gambling and smoking and talking and he says now when he goes into work it's more of a perfunctory exercise he doesn't have to he just wants to and basically when he goes through he knows there are other people in the casino like people that have jobs you know engineers uh, other executives and yet you know when he goes from the parking garage to the casino floor to his own office he doesn't see another person and he says it's just the eeriest thing ever you know this is a place that's known for its neon where the lights went out. And I think he and everyone else there is expecting, you know, a severe economic impact for all of 2020.
1: With respect to uh, the professional sports leagues, I mean, uh, we had the NFL draft recently, which provided a little bit of normalcy. Um, But, but uh, even if owners approve a plan like major league baseball has, you still have to get players buying. And I wonder uh, if, you know, NFL owners and players are on the same page if, uh, if Major League Baseball owners and players are on the same page?
10: Yeah, I think what you're seeing are a lot of different opinions. You know, I was talking to a a guy that plays running back in the NFL yesterday, and he was saying, you know, what happens if they do come back as scheduled and one of the players gets coronavirus? You know, do they have to quarantine the entire team, the whole support staff? Uh, You know, there are probably 150 people at every NFL training camp. So, you know, how do you do that and do that safely? Do you have temperature checks? Uh, You know, are there protocols in place? Is it the same for every team? I think what you're seeing now are sort of optimistic projections from the league. You know, this is what we would like in an ideal world. This is what we think could work to get things back going. But the thing about the coronavirus is we just don't really know. You know, we don't know if there will be a second wave. We don't know if that will take place in the fall. We don't know if these measures that have been taken that, you know, might seem drastic have really uh worked or if there's going to be you know lingering effects for years and years and years and you know you see a lot of these experts talk about this is going to be something that goes on for 36 months and we're in the second inning of this and things of that nature and so you know i had an nfl general manager tell me the other day that he'd be happy if they played 12 games next year which would mean a training camp in september and a delay to the start of the season but at this point i think you know in terms of who's on what page it comes down to most of them just really don't know. Because, you know they're know, they trying their best to get things open. They want the seasons to go on. But at this point, there's just not enough information to know if any of those plans are viable or not.
1: Uh, are they starting from the premise that they won't be playing in front of fans? Because I know some players have expressed opposition to not playing in front of fans. And I don't know how you make the economics work if you're an owner with without fans and, and uh, all the revenue generated by fans attending games.
10: You know, I think the understanding is at least initially they're going to have to play without fans. And you're right, the economic reality there is pretty stark. You look at a lot of these big college football programs, you know, you're talking 100,000 people go there every Saturday. That's uh, ticket revenue, that's gate revenue, that's tax revenue. It's it's all coming and flowing through. But it would be hard, I think. You know, most experts that you talk to in terms of infectious diseases think that it would be hard to really put fans into stands in a way like they used to be without a vaccine and we're, we're quite a ways. It seems like from having something that's widely available in that regard. And so these are the tricky things, you know, you saw the UFC fights last weekend, you saw them do it without fans. It would be, I think, strange to watch, you know, say the, the Jets and the Giants play football in New York without a single person in the stadium. And yet if the owners decide that they don't want to do games without fans, then they're sacrificing TV revenue, which is obviously much higher than right. anything they would make at the stadium on game day. And so I think they're just going to have to weigh those things. You know, is the TV revenue worth it? You know, to offset what they'll lose from tickets? Uh, does that change the competitive balance of how teams play? Will some teams be better in a stadium with no fans? I mean, there's so many questions to be answered within such an unprecedented time. It's it's really fascinating to think about it.
1: Sure, and the projections you have to make, whether you're a casino or the sports book within a casino, as well. You know, in terms of the entertainment piece of, of this and the, and uh, the the sort of secondary businesses that uh, are attendant to professional sports, you, they have to be thinking about adjusting their revenue projections for years to come because of what may be a very slow recovery. So even if you had resumption of the actual games uh, and contests, you still have just not the volume of betting that you're, you, you may be used to or you expected you would have, uh, you know, six months ago.
10: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Like, we don't know how consumers' habits will change. You know, does the guy who bet $200 on a game now bet $50? And how long does that last for? Does the guy who bet $50 decide he doesn't have enough discretionary income and stops betting altogether? The millions and millions of people who lost their job discontinue habits like sports betting or even, you know, cable packages or going to games.
1: He is Greg Bishop. He's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, former Jets beat writer for the New York Times, former Seahawks beat writer for the Seattle Times. Check out his recent piece at SI, The World of Sports Betting and A World Without Sports, which I will tweet out at Dan Show. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate
10: it. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Take care. (laughs)
0: Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Larry Kudlow was on this week with Clinton Foundation Donor Zero, at uh, which point on Sunday he Didn't talk about a V-shaped curve. He didn't talk about a U-shaped curve. He certainly didn't want to talk about a swoosh-shaped recovery or an L-shaped recovery. So we just uh, talked optimistically about uh, the end of the year into next year with a recognition that the second quarter is going to be rough.
11: I I think the numbers for May are going to be also very difficult numbers. It's going to take a while uh, for the reopening to have an impact. Inside the numbers, there's a glimmer of hope. I don't want to downplay the numbers, mind you, but it's a glimmer of hope. Uh, we had um, about 80 percent of it was furloughs and temporary layoffs. We're probably including the Federal Reserve's operations and the budget and fiscal work that President Trump has led with the bipartisan congressional votes. We probably had, George, nine trillion dollars worth of assistance going to one hundred and seventy five has- million Individuals. It's a remarkable plan to attempt to stabilize a it very, been... very, very difficult situation.
1: Yeah, it's been a big response, but has it been the right response, generally speaking? With an answer to that question, we're pleased to be joined again by his eminence. He is George Mason University economics professor and syndicated columnist Walter Williams. Professor Williams, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. So uh, $9 trillion, big government response. Uh, is big a synonym with good? <laughs>
9: I I worry about much of our reliance on government. I think that the, the situation that we are in now is largely a part. It is largely the fault of government. That is the government shutting down businesses and increasing regulations. And I think that when we have any kind of disaster, I don't care whether it's a natural disaster or a pandemic, the best thing that we can do is to allow markets to operate to to uh, to 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 minimize the interference uh, in the economy. And and we have not done that.
1: And I, and I wonder, too, about something that to said, the silver lining about uh, furloughs and the idea of the payroll protection program, maybe still keeping workers attached to their jobs, even if their businesses are shut down or working uh, under a partial opening paradigm right now. I wonder if that will change the longer this goes, because I i don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed a, a different conversation happening over the last uh, week, which is about how we're going to reshape our economy, how things that we used to do things one way, they're going to be done a different way. Uh, whether it's uh, distance learning or distance working, how that's going to impact the need for commercial real estate, how that's going to impact the need for a particular number of employees, the number of uh, businesses on the retail and service sector uh, uh, fronts that will not come back if when states don't reopen until June or July or beyond. It seems to me uh, there's more transformation going on than a lot of the experts were predicting at the outset of these lockdowns.
9: There were, they uh, that might very well be the case but i think that the the more important issue is 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 how will the american people uh respond in general to this uh, pandemic and i think that uh that uh, professor uh, uh, hansen uh victor davis hansen uh, wrote a very very important column a few weeks ago and he and he pointed out the difference between yesterday's Americans and today's Americans. He pointed out that, that in December, December 8th, 1941, the, there was a huge disaster, but the Americans we re, re responded robustly to it. And he asked the question, well, can, can, can today's Americans uh, be, will today's Americans be uh, cry babies and, and blaming one another and going through the political ideology, or will they will they get on the war footing and say, well, we're going to make our country great again. We're going to fight this hand, a uh, 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 tooth and nail, and eventually win. And I, there's a lot of evidence that the Americans are going to play the the blame game and play all the politics instead of acting like our ancestors acted uh, uh, at the, the the Japanese attack in Pearl Harbor. And we, we, it's amazing. You know, for example, just think of this example. We built a highway between Washington, the state of Washington and Alaska, the Alkan highway in less than a year. Can you imagine that being done today?
1: We can't get an interchange done in Chicago in less than a decade. Um, we'll, uh, uh, we'll, we'll pick it up right there, uh, with Professor Walter Williams, when we come back. I want to uh, ask you a little bit about the generational difference, continue that conversation, but also get into what is being proposed uh, today by House Democrats in terms of the next phase of paying people not to work. More with George Mason University economics professor and syndicated columnist Walter Williams. right after this.
0: This is the Dan
8: Prof.
1: Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof. Show. We're talking to Professor Walter Williams, the great economics professor at George Mason University, also a syndicated columnist, longtime syndicated columnist. And Professor Williams, before the break, we were talking about just the, the generational difference, the can do spirit of. The World War Two generation versus maybe what we're seeing today in substantial uh, with substantial prevalence uh, that you're having everything funneled through the political prism rather than the recovery prism, and I just wanted to let you uh, finish your thoughts on that.
9: Well, I I, I think that uh, as as a, a Victor Davis Hanson said, there's a good chance we're going to behave as crybabies and and depend on government allocation. That is, we're going we're it looks like what we're going to depend on is, gu- is asking our politicians to give us money to make us whole again. Now, keep in mind that politicians, when they give out money and when they spend money, it's not their own money. It's not the tooth fairy's money. It's not the Santa Claus money. The only way that they can, they can give one American citizen $1 is to first take it away from some other American. And so... So, so if the politicians play the money game, some Americans are going to benefit from that, and other Americans are going to lose. And and the and the Americans uh, uh, who will lose, they will have uh, they will have uh, no. There'll be nothing that they can do to make themselves whole again.
1: Uh, I wonder uh, what about Elon Musk? Uh, I wonder if the the example of Elon Musk gives you any encouragement. He's perhaps um, an unexpected um, uh, rebel in this whole saga. He's sort sort of like Batman, not the hero you want, the hero you need. Maybe I don't know. But uh, he's reopening his uh, production facility in California in contravention to the state order there. Basically saying, "Come and get me." Now, this is Elon Musk, who wouldn't even exist without all the federal largesse he and his companies have received. So it's a bit that's ironic. Right. It's a bit ironic, but nonetheless, he is making a stand to say, "You cannot take away people's private property," and that's what you're doing. Governments at every level, um, uh, like this, that's you're, right. vi- and, and you're violating people's constitutional about, he's
9: rights. Threatened his, he's threatened to move his corporate headquarters to uh, Texas, I believe. Right. Right. And and I think. And I think you brought up the most important um, uh, downfall to this uh, uh, this uh, pandemic, and that is the growth of government power. That is the real one of the real issues for Americans uh, in the coming years is to somehow take the power that we've allowed politicians to have to take it back. That is, we're allowing politicians to tell us. What what is a vital uh, uh, what is what is a, an essential enterprise uh, We're allowing them to to interfere with our health uh, uh, system, healthcare system. And we're going that's going to be the biggest uh, downfall of this of uh, this uh, pandemic is the power that we have given the politicians.
1: And uh, the, p- the politicians are uh, returning the favor. Um, so they're presenting uh, by, for example, House Democrats uh, want a new uh, relief slash pay people not to work uh, measure a trillion dollars to uh, state and local governments, a trillion dollars to businesses and people suffering financially. Uh, there's a proposal by Senators uh, Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders and Edward Markey to pay people two thousand dollars a month and two thousand dollars per kid, up to three kids to um, get through the pandemic whenever that should end. What do you think of those measures?
9: I I think that I think that all of them are bad. That is, that that is there's, there, there might be some a a case for a little bit of government intervention uh, to take care, to, to help us get on the road to recovery, but not the, uh, the handouts will, that will become permanent. Keep, Keep in mind, a lot of these people are saying. A lot of the politicians are saying this is a temporary uh, affair. But uh, as Milton Friedman said a number of years ago, he said there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government program. Indeed. And so we have to worry about uh, somehow limiting these politicians. And 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 one of the problems is is that that they'll they'll buy uh, American allegiance to their programs through these various handouts.
1: Well, and also, too, it's not just the growth of government at every level. It's also the, uh, the 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 reliance of state and local governments on the federal government, not just with respect to the uh, lost revenue from COVID-19 and the response to it, but also uh, we see Wall Street Journal reporting that public pension plans lost a median 13% in the first quarter of this year. And of course, they're going to take, it looks like they'll probably take a bit more of a hammering before it's all said and done. Uh, regardless, now you have states that have made bad decisions for generations, wanting the federal government to step in and bail them out of some of those bad decisions.
9: That is absolutely right. And I think that we should not do this. That is the uh, and and you, you point out quite correctly the issue of the of the uh, state and local government uh, pension plans that are. That are unfunded and on the, they're on the brink of bankruptcy, and by no means should the federal government uh, bail them out because this is what local politicians have done over the years. They've said that uh, they caved to public employee unions by saying, "Look, we'll just give you a three percent pay increase, but we'll load up your pension benefits with the with uh, with seven or eight uh, percent uh, pay increases." And so they're able to conceal what they've given to late, to public employee unions uh, through the uh, pension plan. And now is the time of the comeuppance. And we should allow them to stew in their own juice.
1: If uh, you were advising the president of the United States, uh, like, say, Larry Kudlow is, uh, on what to do, what is one thing that uh, you should demand in exchange for anything else in terms of trying to expedite the recovery? What would that policy be?
9: Well, uh, I, I, don't, I don't have all the answers, but uh, one of the things I would advise the president is to keep the spending as limited as possible and to recognize that the, that the federal government, uh, that we are a republic, and the federal government has some responsibilities, and the state and local governments have responsibilities, and it is not the responsibility of the federal government. They don't have any constitutional authority. To be in the business of bailing out uh, uh, state and local governments.
1: He is Professor Walter Williams, Professor of Economics at George Mason University, syndicated columnist. Get all of his writings at walterewilliams.com. Professor Williams, always an honor. Thanks for joining us. And thank
8: you.
9: The more you
8: listen,
0: the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof. Show.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Prof. Show. Have you uh, seen this clip circulating on uh, the interweb, the kids uh, sharing it and so forth? I'm talking about an episode uh, from Dead Zone, the TV series. A TV series certainly not worthy of Dead Zone, the Christopher Walken movie. Dead Zone, the TV series, Anthony Michael Hall, starring. This is back 2003. For those of you who don't think um, that uh, the CIA uh, or uh, the upper reaches of uh, the intelligence community in the federal government has uh, uh, creative input uh, or is enlisted for creative input for uh, television shows and movies, <laughs> this is this. It's sort of remarkable. Uh, the, uh, uh, the splicing together of this episode of Dead Zone from 2003 about a uh, pandemic
0: alright what's going on just let me think about where to start
5: well he saw something what is it
0: I saw a virus I think some kind of disease
1: a, a virus like, like what like SARS
0: I, I don't know all I know is that it's highly infectious it may be fatal Right now, we could all be infected. If we take this outside, we risk the whole town.
9: Johnny, how big is this going to get?
0: I don't know. We just have to do everything we can to stop this, starting right now, Walter. He's right. All right. All right, here's what's going to happen. We need to make sure that everybody that's inside stays inside. I'm going to get a few deputies on it. We'll call it a, uh, a lockdown. Lockdown? Well, until I come up with something
10: better.
1: Yeah, no, that'll work. Uh, that was, uh, I think that was, those were doctors Fauci and Burks at the beginning there. That was their original star turn.
10: China. Maybe we should wear masks. What difference does it make? According to you, we've already been exposed. Let's get one thing straight, Mr. Smith. I'm responding to political pressure.
0: <laughs> Rip from the headlines.
1: China. Isn't that where
0: flu viruses come from? Yeah.
4: A lot of viruses come from there.
1: Yeah. A lot of viruses come from there, which is why uh, President Trump moved to uh, pull federal pension funds invested in Chinese equities, because uh, a lot of viruses come from there and then they cover them up and don't tell anybody. And that becomes a real problem. It's just, just, you know, I know there's things circulating like this and a passage from a Dean Kuhn's book in the early 80s. And um, it's all just sort of silly. So take it in that vein. Anyway, um, rather than going back and watching old episodes of Dead Zone, which I do not recommend, I've got something I do recommend, and that is Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, which is a documentary presenting convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. The work product of investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel, and throughout the world to search for answers to one very important question. Did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus at home, along with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. Those other movies include The Moses Controversy and The Red Sea Miracle. It also, uh, Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, includes a uh, panel discussion moderated by Gretchen Carlson and featuring Dennis Prager and Eric Metaxas and Anne Graham Lotz. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and the others in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com at Patterns of Evidence.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danprofshow.com where you can get podcasts of the program as you can at Spotify and iTunes and on social media at Dan Prof Show. One of the uh, more um, relevant, I think, exchanges uh, with respect to Dr. Fauci's testimony before the Senate committee today, along with Dr. Redfield at CDC, along with Dr. Hahn from FDA, was uh, this exchange with uh, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. Rand Paul uh, pressing Dr. Fauci more than most, uh, just for some context to where we should be listening to Dr. Fauci and where we shouldn't, uh, what we should be discussing in terms of balance and trade-offs and what we aren't, and uh, give a listen. This is uh, about uh, kids getting back to school in the fall, but it's an example of a larger Protocol, I would suggest
4: much as I respect you, Dr. Fauci, I don't think you're the end all. I don't think you're the one person that gets to make a decision. We can listen to your advice, but there are people on the other side saying there's not going to be a surge and that we can safely open the economy, and the facts will bear this out. But if we keep kids out of school for another year, what's going to happen is the poor and underprivileged kids who don't have a parent that's able to teach them at home are not going to learn for a full year. And I think we ought to look at the Swedish model and we ought to look at letting our kids get back to school. I think it's a huge mistake if we don't open the schools in the fall. Thank you.
2: Mr. Chairman, can I respond to that even though there are only 32 seconds left?
3: Uh, Yes, and you might make it clear whether or not you suggested that uh, we shouldn't go back to school in the fall.
2: Well, uh, first of all, uh, Senator Paul, uh, thank you for your comments. I, I have never made myself out to be the end all and only voice in this. I'm a scientist, a physician and a public health official. I give advice according to the best scientific evidence. There are a number of other people who come into that and give advice that are more related to the things that you spoke about, about the need to get the country back open again and economically. I don't give advice about economic things. I don't give advice about anything other than public health. So I wanted to respond to that. The second thing is that you use the word we should be humble about what we don't know. And I think that falls under the fact that we don't know everything about this virus And we really better be very careful, particularly when it comes to children, because the more and more we learn, we're seeing things about what this virus can do that we didn't see from the studies in China or in Europe. For example, right now, children presenting with COVID-19 who actually have a very strange inflammatory syndrome, very similar to Kawasaki
1: syndrome. Yeah, that's true, although it's a limited uh, caseload at this point. Uh, What we know from um, across the pond, the experience of some European countries and some studies that he referenced generally, be a little bit more specific, uh, a a study done um, by uh, Kari Stefansson, who is a Icelandic neurologist uh, that he co-authored in the New England Journal of Medicine. Children under 10 are less likely to get infected than adults, and if they get infected, they're less likely to get seriously ill. What's interesting, he noted in an interview, is that even if children do get infected, they're less likely to transmit the disease to other to others than adults. We have not found a single instance of a child infecting parents. We also have some you know, real world data, uh, which uh, is curiously ignored in some circles. Denmark reopened schools April 15th, two weeks later. Christian uh, with Jesse, a scientist in the Department of Infectious Diseases at uh, Aarhus University, said there are no signs whatsoever that the partial reopening has caused a bigger spread of infection. As of May 9th, three weeks after schools open, the trend of new cases in Denmark has actually been down. Norway opened lower grades in April 27th. The older grades set to reopen in May. The day-to-day trend there is slightly more erratic than in Denmark, but the country is still well below its peak in March. And, of course, we know the example of Sweden that we've talked about at some length on this program. For more on this and uh, so much more, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Ellen. He's a pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Ellen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
10: Thank you. you good to be
11: back.
1: Um, what about that discussion um, and, and that discussion, the back and forth between Dr. Fauci and Rand Paul, as indicative of a larger dynamic with respect to all of the facets of the virus and trying to combat it, and which is balancing, understanding the relative risks that different decisions pose and trying to balance those risks as best as possible.
11: Yeah. I mean, I, I agree very much with the overall trend of what they both were saying. I mean, I know there's, there's a desire to sort of make their points stronger and, have a spin to it. But I think generally, they're both saying the same thing, which is there is a balancing act, just as you said, that needs to go on. And the final decision about how one opens, how one brings back the economy, you know, I spent years studying social determinants of health. And we know, and you mentioned this last time we talked, that the the, the consequences of a closed economy and and people being left at home has Implications for spread within the home, it has implications for loneliness, and it also has the fact that people being out of work and, and not having sources of income is really going to cause a lot of stress. So it, it, there is a public health in part of the stay at home kind of approach or the restrictive mitigation approach, just like there is a problem with mass people coming together in stadiums in you know for for sporting events where you have a lot of people together for a long period of time so somebody has to balance that and that's your point and i think that whoever are whether you think the leadership's governor mayors or at the president level someone has to make what i call the ceo call about balancing those factors that represents what i think their constituents want to see as their balance and to do that right and now i'm getting a little long-winded but to do that right the data have to be more local. The look at national data, even look at statewide data, is imprecise and doesn't tell you what needs to happen if you think about a county by county or zip code by zip code, however you want to look at the data.
1: Yeah, and, and interesting. When
11: you start to look, I'm sorry.
1: Interestingly, no, but just on that point, to build on your point, uh, Dr. Fauci in later Q&A said sort of precisely that with respect to school districts. This is sort of a school district by school district thing. Um, and and he also said, look, I don't have a good answer to the criticism of the cascading effects of keeping children at home and not allowing them to go to school. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and this is but, you know, so it's, it, I don't blame Fauci so much as I blame the media for the characterization of Fauci as this omniscient being who's saying definitely one thing that he's actually not saying. He's saying I'm in my lane. Um, giving you the best advice and counsel I, I have, staying in my lane, you want to talk about uh, economic policy, you want to talk about uh, other uh, you know individual liberty issues, then um, that's not my lane. And so that's somebody exactly. else's advice and counsel to give and somebody else's ultimate decision to make, a duly elected representative.
11: Right, and I think the extent where he gets himself, you know, he pushes, he's like, don't, you know, don't misquote me on the public health impact, but don't quote me on the economic impact. And right, that's- that's kind of where he gets himself. You know, people get a little pushy with him, and he's like, "I'm going to tell you the truth, from my science perspective." But that's just science. I mean, I'm not telling you what you got to do. I'm just telling you what the science is.
1: Well, right, and and, and 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 on the on this point, and just because you were mentioning it uh, uh, yeah. b- b- before about um, lives versus lives, uh, another what the actual yeah. discussion is versus how it's been characterized. This study out uh, just yesterday from the Wellbeing Trust uh, in conjunction with the Robert Graham Center for Policy Studies and Family Medicine and Primary Care, projecting uh, as many as 75,000 more people will die from drug or alcohol misuse and suicide uh, because of the uh, exacerbating impacts of the uh, COVID-19, the virus itself, plus the response the economic failure the unemployment the social isolation so that that's a real thing that has to be factored in
11: absolutely and when you look at the 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 curves around excess deaths where people are looking at you know how many deaths do we normally have at this time of year and how many deaths are we actually seeing at this time of year you know the 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 first press is to say well that's that difference between what we're actually seeing and what we normally see is covid and what, you, and I would say, yeah, it's COVID, but it may not be the infection. It may be the consequences of what we're doing from that. So people not going to the hospital because they're scared of getting COVID. But at the same time, also spousal abuse. Are you getting overdoses? Opiates are getting worse. There's drug treatments on there. People with chronic disease not are not going to the hospital, so they're dying. I mean, you know, you create, you, you, you actually really have to break down. Those those areas of excess death as an indicator as a as a, as a canary in the coal mine for what you're referring to, which is the sort of social factors that then build into these harmful effects on death and morbidity.
1: I, I want to continue on the conversation of the lethality um, a, a little bit more, and then also get into some of the your write ups on uh, on both uh, antiviral treatments as well as the prospect of a vaccine, which uh, Fauci also touched upon in his testimony. More with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital right after this.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. And we're talking about lethality. And I know there has to be some handle on this, but um, it seems like uh, humility is the word of the day. There needs to be some humility, I think, with what we know to be certain about these death counts and what we know to be certain about excess deaths. Uh, There was a CDC report out this week. Non-COVID deaths rise over 5,000 above normal rate in New York City, and they attribute that to exactly what you were talking about before, we, before the break, which is people not getting the quote-unquote elective procedures that they need, people not getting the treatments that they need that may not be immediate, but they become immediate if you let them go untreated, the conditions go untreated. Uh, we also, CDC reporting me- measles vaccines, vaccinations in the U.S. among children fall 60% since the pandemic. People afraid to go out, people afraid to get vaccines, people afraid to be in a hospital setting. Also this, I mentioned this a a while back, but the uh, report that came out in a journal for epidemiologists four years after the uh, H1N1 outbreak back in 2009 and the results of this study looking at projections of lethality of H1N1, it's just a remarkable statement The researchers, we included 77 estimates of the case fatality risk from 50 published studies, about one third of which were published within the first nine months of the pandemic. We identified very substantial heterogeneity in published estimates ranging from less than one to more than 10,000 deaths per 100,000 cases or infections. And they talk about the choice of case definition as explaining the variance between one in 100,000 and 10,000 in 100,000. I mean, that is just unbelievable. That's an unbelievable spread, to borrow a word. And that's four years after the H1N1 outbreak. So what do we really know in real time is, I guess, the question I'm leading to.
11: problem with all these studies is what's your denominator and what's your numerator, right? And by that, I mean how many people are, die and how many people were infected. And you're trying to figure out the case
10: fatality rate.
11: The problem with these is that you never get a true sample of everybody in the country. So you use different kinds of estimates. And if you take symptomatic people who are in the hospital on ventilators and you did your study there, you're going to find a high case fatality rate. If you find, if you go to a place where everyone's running around well and you find a case, they're going to be well and they're not going to die and they're going to get a low case fatality rate. And the problem is if those numbers will never change if you go 20 years from now because they only have the data from four years ago. Right. So it's not as if were that time they've had a chance to refine their estimates. And the same thing's gonna happen with us here. You know, the bottom line is is that I don't think the lethality, and I think most people think the lethality is gonna drop somewhere between two and less than 1%. It could be in there somewhere. Worse for older people, obviously, people with chronic problems. That's kind of where we are. And what is the mortality, lethality of staying at home and and unemployment? I mean, that's the question, right? At the end of the day, that's the question. And the ways to be more precise and get out of this dialogue about who's right and who's wrong, and slice the data much more finely, and allow things to happen locally. I mean, I think that's kind of what you're talking about, what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you've written about, which is uh, remdesivir as a potential uh, antiviral, and, and just. Uh, Actually, a really interesting piece in City Journal that you wrote about uh, inductive, inductive reasoning versus deductive reasoning. (laughs) Fauci addressed remdesivir at the opening of uh, his remarks today. He you know, he basically said something along the lines of of what you wrote, which is that uh, it's showing promise, but it's it's limited promise. It's not a panacea. It has a statistically significant improvement in the those in the clinical trials. But it is uh, not necessarily something that is a game changer.
11: Yeah, it's far from a game changer. I think what he said at the Oval Office, which I think is probably the most important part, it, it's a foothold on a climb to a cure. That's really, he saw that happen with HIV and he talked about with HIV, the first drug we got that actually showed some promise, though it turned out to be very, very limited, is ACT. And we got ACT, and it was very effective, but but the fact that the virus developed resistance and people are going becoming sick again after three to six months. And then it took the development of a new class of drugs combined with that to make a difference. There's a study out now that's just being reported, and I don't know if it's peer-reviewed, but I saw it online where they talked about redemzivir, combined with the the drug we give for pre-exposure prophylaxis to HIV, and the HIV meds, and those two combined also show the ability to reduce viral load, which is a sign that you're beating the virus over a period of time. So, right, we don't have a cure. We're not even close to cure. The clinical significance of that drug is relatively limited. You can make a big deal, but it's relatively limited. The real power of it is it's a foothold on when you start coupling with other things could turn out to be very effective, but you need something to begin with.
1: And uh, you also note that uh, we're learning things through induction as we treat uh, COVID-19 infections mm-hmm. that are important and we're happening upon things that we uh, didn't know before we started dealing with the actual uh, infected.
11: Yeah, and it's interesting. If you to watch and you, know, you read Twitter and you read around, you read about people coming out. I've like been following this uh, since the pandemic sort of really became prevalent, particularly in New York and Seattle. You saw doctors getting online and talking about you know, at some point downloading what their experience was. This was early on. And they were two things that started to let the extreme hypoxia in these patients who were talking. And the other thing that they were talking about was this sort of double wave of illness, that a patient would come in, they'd be getting better, and all of a sudden they'd get worse. And they those two phenomena have now become sort of a dominant discussion in terms of pathophysiology, along with the fact that other organs are affected. And in the first case, they observed that patients... We're coming in, and people now are thinking as happy hypoxia, where their blood uh, oxygen levels are extremely low. But they're sitting here happy and talking, and they get sicker and sicker and sicker, and they said, well, we'll put them on a ventilator with something like that looks this way and one of these breathing machines. And the problem is that can cause complications for both the medical personnel, for the patient who's got this through them, and the resources that we have in terms of ventilators. So the observation was perhaps if we gave them a lot more oxygen than we're used to giving them, we tolerate the fact that their blood oxygen levels are lower than used to, and we lay them on their belly, perhaps this will do better. And people are starting to do that. And that was purely done observationally. There aren't any clinical trials yet. Now, someone will eventually go off and do a clinical trial. But this was just based on observation. The same thing is happening now. Everyone saw the second wave, the second sort of, the second, the sort of severity coming on in the hospitalized patients, and they realize this is what they call the cytokine storm, which is where the body's immune system starts fighting itself. So it's not just the COVID infecting the cells and killing cells and making you unable to breathe, but the COVID comes along and turns your immune system on, and then your immune system fights you, just like people who have arthritis and different types of immunologic diseases. And so now we're talking about Trying to give therapies, and people are giving therapies based on this observation that affect this kind of second body fighting itself uh, storm.
1: Well, uh, it's it's fascinating. I mean, and it's just a reminder of like how much is being learned in real time, and and yeah. uh, so the questions that need to keep being asked, and and you know measuring and measuring and remeasuring and remeasuring before we're cutting in terms of uh, m- macro pub- public policy decisions. He is Dr. Jonathan Ellen. He's a pediatrician, an epidemiologist, a public health academician, and the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Ellen, thanks so much for joining us again. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And
6: we can
8: this thing together. forever. Nothing's gonna stop us
0: now. You're listening to the Dan Croft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And I'm going to keep uh, using this clip because uh, de Blasio, the uh, Sandinista mayor of New York City, is uh, such a perfect exemplar of the left and of this choice that Americans have to make or at least decide whether or not they support the choices made by their duly elected representatives, which is this. Does the recovery come through replenishing the public sector coffers with more tax dollars from the Public sector coffers at the federal level, or does it come through the private sector? Remember what Bill de Blasio said last week about uh, the path to recovery. No recovery until you make New York City whole. No recovery for New York City until New York City government gets its.
11: We've been succeeding here. A lot of cities have been succeeding in helping the American economy. And now the president's turning his back. Because of partisan affiliation. Who does that, John? What kind of president in the middle of a crisis says, well, I'm going to help you, but I'm not going to help you because of what's on your voter registration card? No, what what we need here is a stimulus that puts us all back on our feet so we can succeed together. If it doesn't happen, I guarantee you there's no recovery. And I hate saying that, but, John, it's the truth. If there is not a strong fourth stimulus for cities and states, there will not be a national economic recovery, period.
1: Economic growth and prosperity comes to the public sector. That's what we're to understand, uh, Bill de Blasio's economic philosophy and uh, his parties, for that matter. Remember, this is the gentleman who gave us the seminal line of the 2020 campaign cycle predating his ill-fated run for president, which is there's plenty of money in this country. It's just in the wrong hands. He used to mean it was in the rich people's hands, needs to be in his constituents' hands, his voters' hands. Now he means it's in the private sector's hands. It needs to be in my hands, the public sector's hands. And just one other thing, because my governor, my home state governor, uh, my home city mayor, Lori Lightfoot, doing the same thing De Blasio is doing, pretending they're going it alone. They're getting no help from Trump because they're left wing Democrat socialists and he's a Republican. And this yesterday from President Trump during his briefing.
5: During the month of May, FEMA and HHS will be delivering 12.9 million swabs to states nationwide. We already have them. The delivery will be very quick. We're prepared to provide millions of additional swabs if any state is on a pace to surpass its goal. And their goals are very high. We've set them very high. We've told them to set them very high. My administration will also provide approximately 9 million transport media, which are used to transfer swabs to the lab processing, a complicated process, but we've made it simple.
1: And then his logistics guy, Brad Smith, got up there and explained in detail how the feds are working with the states on the testing, both in terms of resources as well as processing. Going it alone, I mean, the stones on de Blasio with all the resources that were scrambled for New York City and New York State. Remarkable, the stones on these people. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joining with somebody else who has big stones, but in a good way. Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
12: My pleasure, Dan.
1: What about the idea that de Blasio, Cuomo, they're going it alone. They're not get, they're, Sometimes they're getting the federal support when their demands are fulfilled. Sometimes they're not. And now they're not because they want a blank check from the federal government.
12: Well, that's exactly it. And the distinction is everything here, that it's one thing to provide test kits to provide hospital beds, ventilators, personal equipment, all of that sort of thing. The president did everything he could, and the governor of California, the governor of New York, uh, even the mayor of New York, de Blasio, at various times thanked the president. I've seen an ad that the president's team is running, and they've got both Gavin Newsom and Andrew Cuomo in it, saying what a wonderful job he did. But the issue now that de Blasio is raising and that Cuomo has tried to raise is essentially bailing out the cities and states not just for the costs they incurred during the pandemic but for the revenue they lost because they shut down businesses it has blown tremendous holes in the budgets in New York State for example the budget, is some. it sounds like it's somewhere around $15 billion, maybe even more, that New York State is saying it needs to make itself whole, as though the pandemic didn't really happen in effect, uh, to make up every dollar lost. But the problem, of course, is that when you examine the finances of these blue states, you find disproportionate money going to unions. Which in turn, of course, are the voting blocks of these blue state governors and mayors. And so, what you're asking the federal taxpayers to do is to keep the game going, keep, keep the, the scam going, so that we can continue to re- keep taxes high and yet still get reelected because we redistribute that money to our union friends and to the social justice warriors and the activist uh, progressive groups that always turn out the troops to vote for us.
1: When we come back with the New York Post Michael Goodwin, we'll pick up our discussion of city and state finances and who should bear the brunt of the revenue shortfalls. More with Michael Goodwin when we return. Exposing political
0: fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show.
1: back with the New York Post Michael Goodwin and uh, I want to pick up our discussion about the city and state finances and responsibility for the revenue shortfalls
12: now it is true that if the cities go bankrupt if the states effectively become insolvent then there will be will not be money to hire police pay police teachers street cleaners etc but the fact is in these progressive cities and states, these sanctuary cities and states, the police don't enforce the law anymore. They've emptied the prisons for the sake of the coronavirus. The only people they want to lock up are, you know, hair salon owners and things like that and people who don't social distance. So it is really very much a mixed bag. The federal government obviously is printing money about as fast as it can. But there will be hell to be paid for that down the road at some point. The debt cannot increase exponentially forever without consequence. And so this idea that the federal government should just keep the game going in the blue states, I think is a it's, it's fighting words. I think it, the Senate will be very hard-pressed. The president will be very hard-pressed from his supporters just to open the vault and give New York and Illinois and California, particularly New Jersey, Everything it wants in terms of trying to keep its budget balanced.
1: Well, there's just a a, a characteristic among uh, the politicians from all of those locales you mentioned that uh, in common, which is a preternatural inability to accept responsibility for what happens on their watch, even with respect to decisions they make. For example, Governor Cuomo, America's governor, as I understand it from the D.C. press corps, continued until this weekend to stand by his decision to allow nursing home patients who are infected to be reintroduced into nursing homes. Despite the fact that we know a plurality of deaths, both in New York state as well as in the nation, have occurred in nursing homes. He finally relented and said patients must now test negative for the virus before hospitals can return them to nursing homes. But for a long time, he defended that catastrophic decision.
12: Yes, it was a March 25th decision that lasted until Sunday and during which more than 5,200 people died in New York State nursing homes. The vast, vast majority of them, after that order, let in hundreds and perhaps thousands of infected patients into these nursing homes, where I always have to remind people, Dan, that, Families were prohibited from visiting the nursing homes.
1: Yeah, good uh, point.
12: Lest they bring in the virus. Instead, let's send it in. Let's knowingly send it in by the truckloads of infected patients from hospitals. I mean, that is what Andrew Cuomo did in New York. It is the most unconscionable and fatal policy I have ever seen uh, in the history of covering New York politics. It's an extraordinary moment. And for him to defend it, although he changed it Sunday, he said, no, I didn't really change it. It was working. It was a good policy. Well, if it was a good policy, why did you change it? Why did you end the rule? Why did you change the rule that they can no longer take these infected patients? Look, it was was a terrible decision. And let me just say quickly, it's politics today that nobody can ever admit mistake. Well, you know, also, it's on video somewhere, so you'd never admit you're wrong. You just move on.
1: Also, too, though, I, I mean, the lack of accountability from the uh, vaunted fourth estate on the eastern seaboard. Ron DeSantis is some yahoo in Florida. Who, oh, by the way, one of his first acts was to cordon off nursing homes to protect nursing homes, which is why the uh, fatality rate in nursing homes in Florida is a fraction of what it is in places like New York and Illinois and Michigan and elsewhere. He's, you know, uh, recklessly disregarding people's lives. And Andrew Cuomo is America's governor, as I said, in terms of the coverage. Yeah.
12: Well, you know, and, and I've written about uh, New York versus Florida before uh, in terms of budgets, uh, because uh, New York and Florida has slightly more people than New York, a million or so, r- roughly uh, other, otherwise equal or at around 20 million people. Um, And Florida has a budget that's half of New York's,
9: Mm
12: -hmm. uh, half. uh, So New York spends roughly $100 billion more than Florida does. Uh, You don't hear Floridians complaining about the lack of government service. So somehow Florida gets by with $100 billion less than New York. Now, in some ways, that's unfair. New York City has a subway system, et cetera nonetheless, I think it is instructive that in this in this environment, even on the pandemic, these states take very different approaches and as you say, Florida surrounds its nursing homes with a kind of almost a barbed wire thou shalt not pass cuomo sends in the infected patients yeah uh, i mean that 's a very big difference, and the results are telling i mean Florida has. Significantly fewer deaths overall, but especially in nursing homes.
1: Uh, results uh, also telling of uh, choosing to reorient all healthcare infrastructure to COVID 19 patients to the exclusion of patients with other serious ailments that need treatment. Reuters reporting the number of deaths in New York City from causes other than COVID 19 rose by more than 5,000 people above the seasonal norm the first two months of the pandemic. This, according to the CDC, and the CDC uh, suggests several factors, including delays in seeking or getting life-saving care for fear of exposure to the coronavirus or because the, the quote-unquote elective procedures they needed weren't so elective and they needed them.
12: Yeah. I, look, I, I think the whole issue of uh, the cause of death uh, across the country, perhaps, but especially in New York, is, is going to be very contested because at one point the CDC was essentially telling uh, the cities and the states, if you, even if you haven't tested, if you suspect it's a coronavirus case, then that's the cause of death on the death certificate, right. uh, which, which has consequences of its own because that, that then brings the numbers higher and puts pressure on things like the lockdown. Uh, so I, I think the whole way deaths are counted is, is especially unclear. And New, York and New York City and New York State, for example, count them differently. So every time we run in the New York Post a graphic showing the number of deaths, there's an asterisk after the city's number because it counts them in a different way the state does. It looks like the total between the two is not so different, but that's because the city has included some 3,400 at least that the state doesn't recognize. So it's a weird situation, and I don't know that we'll ever get it settled because obviously these bodies are being buried or cremated without being tested. And so the, the cause of death on the death certificate is going to be permanent.
1: He is Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
12: My pleasure. Thank you, okay. We're going
5: to rock this town, rock it inside out.
2: We're going to rock
0: this town. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and I'm so glad that uh, Trump is back doing more COVID-19 task force briefings, particularly the interplay between him and the media. And I like I, I don't complain about the Jim Acostas of the world and uh, some of the other of the antagonistic. Members of the D.C. press corps that go at Trump in the most ridiculous ways, because uh, I like to see people stand and deliver back and forth side by side. And I think it's useful for the American people to see who's making sense, who's fair minded or um, who has nothing to offer other than to prosecute a political position, to be the loyal opposition, not the holder to account of the elected official, the job of the fourth estate but who just wants to cheap shot and forever take the opposing viewpoint regardless of the merits of the opposing viewpoint or even the question from whence it comes. Let me give you an example of what I mean from Monday. A couple of great exchanges. On uh, the uh, member of Vice President Pence's staff who tested positive for COVID-19. What happened? System failure.
5: We had a situation here at the White House on Friday where a member of the Vice President's staff tested positive for coronavirus, which has now caused three of the top U.S. officials involved in the coronavirus response to self isolate. Uh, Two part question Where did the system break down to allow that to happen? And where, what would you say to employers to look at the experience here at the White House and say, are we ready for this? Uh, I don't think the system broke down at all. One person tested positive, surprisingly, because uh, uh, the previous day tested negative. And three people that were in contact, relative contact, who I believe they've all tested totally negative, uh, but they are going to for a period of time self-isolate. So uh,
1: system failure, I thought this was such an infectious virus that uh, anybody could get it at any time. And despite the the hundreds of people who work in the White House and the daily testing, so from one day to the next, going from negative to positive, you can, you know, ostensibly come into somebody who's in contact with somebody who's infected and catch... The virus, which apparently is what happened. How's that system failure? How does that suggest uh, employers? You can't use this model. Well, isn't the point of testing to make sure that nobody's positive and to catch anybody who is. And so on the point of testing, another prime example.
11: There does right. seem to be a double standard here, Mr. President, where members of your own staff can get tests frequently when they need it, but ordinary Americans cannot. So yeah. when will the rest of America have the same access that members of your own White House have to
5: testing. And you know what? If we didn't get the tests, if we did no tests in the White House, you'd be up complaining. Why aren't you getting tests for the White House? See, we can't win because
1: yeah, exactly right.
5: It's <laughs> exactly right. If you're
1: testing, uh, it's a two-tiered system. Why do you get tests and not everybody gets tests at the same frequency you do? Maybe because I'm the President of the United States and I'm the head of state, and so it's sort of important. Um, this just in: the President of the United States is treated a bit differently, particularly when it pertains to his or her health then is everybody else uh, was with that question been asked to president obama no is it a silly question yes is it a perfect representation of the overwhelming majority of the dc press corps absolutely this is dan prof thank you for joining us on another installment of the program please do so again tomorrow far from the fake
0: news he's always got the real story this is the dan prof show
5: you are fake news